everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I am here to bring you the weekend warm-up BFW show where we go over all of the big news of the week. And I got to tell you, I'm starting out this podcast a little slow. I woke up this morning, went to do my normal routine, which was I usually drink somewhere between 20 and 30 ounces of water. Then I make coffee. All of a sudden today, I had no coffee. I don't know how I got to this point where I did not realize we had no coffee in the house, but I have been off all day now. So headaches, haven't felt great, tired. What is wrong with me? The only good thing that came out of this is to prevent myself from feeling any worse. I doubled up the normal amount of beer that I drink. So I'm hoping to avoid having an even worse headache by doing that. But I don't know if medically or scientifically that makes sense or will work. But that was my theory on how to deal with it. But yes, eventually at some point today, I did get out, get some coffee. And that's what I'm drinking now at just about seven o'clock on Thursday night as I record this week's edition of the show. And thanks for bearing with me as I... Wanted to put out that little disclaimer of why I might be a little off tonight, but maybe to you guys, I'm probably off a lot. So um, let's get down to it. Uh, another good week at Bayern Munich coming off of a of a huge victory last weekend where the team looked thoroughly dominant. There isn't much bad to say about the team at this point. And that's funny because, you know, you have segments of the Bayern Munich fan base that are always negative and they can always find something, but the criticism of Julian Nagelsmann, the criticism of some players on the roster. It's really hard to go and point fingers at this stage. I mean, they look really, really good. And and that's a fun thing for the Bayern Munich fan base. So uh, there's a lot to be excited about. This team looks just fantastic, but it's a long season and we have to see how things evolve. We have to see how injuries go. We have to see if they can keep up this pace and if Nagelsmann can keep up his positive influence over the team. So we got a while to go. It's going to be a a long and fun season, but as of now, things look great for Bayern Munich. And with that, the first thing that I learned this week when I looked at the schedule was that Nico Kovac was coming back to Bayern Munich. And when I thought about this return, man, something really hit me that I hadn't thought of before. For all of what most people would consider failures during Kovac's tenure at Bayern Munich, he really did set the tone for how things operate today. And let me lay that out for you. Now, I don't want to come across as any type of Kovac fanboy. He was, in my mind, a good coach, but not at Bayern Munich at that time. Uh, there was a lot working against him. Of course, he was hired coming off of just a just a phenomenal season in Eintracht Frankfurt, made the move to Bayern Munich, and things were not good straight from the get-go. Uh, you could point to a couple of things. I'm not going to harp on too long, but he was never really in sync with the front office. And what that showed was there was a lack of cohesion between the sporting side and the coaching side in terms of building a roster that the coach could use to implement his system. And at that point, Kovac was really left out on an island. He couldn't get any of the players he felt he needed. Remember the infamous scumbag gene? He wanted Bayern players who were a little more uh, hard-edged. And that quote really got some run on our site and in social media. But um, Kovac was unable to get those kind of players. Uh, He was unable to get players that he wanted to run a system that he wanted to run. Instead, 
and this is a point of contention, he had to continue to run a 4-2-3-1, which is not something he reportedly wanted to do, but it was something that the club wanted him to do. And Kovac being, uh, you know, a younger coach, relatively speaking, being someone who did not have quite the power of someone like a Pep Guardiola or a Carlo Ancelotti or even a Yup Heinkes, um, Kovac had to basically do what he was told. So there was no communication, really. There was not a lot of collaboration. And I think that's one of the primary things that helped Bayern learn, because we saw that really get maxed out during Hansi Flick's tenure, because for the initial stages of bad communication or poor communication and and really non-existent collaboration, it really came to the forefront with Flick because he experienced great success and really couldn't maintain any say in personnel decisions. Um, he was able to run his system that he wanted to, but luckily that was really in sync with what Byron wanted him to do. So Flick, while he gets a lot of credit for maybe changing the culture in terms of forcing the issue for the sporting side and the coaching staff to work closer together, really the foundation for things changing happened with Kovac. If you remember back when Carlo Ancelotti took over, wanted to run a 4-3-3, went out and was able to get players who could run that system. But I think Ancelotti, for as, as great of a coach as he has been everywhere else, his tenure at Bayern Munich was was lazy, um, was very laissez-faire. It was the training sessions were reportedly not great. The Obviously, the results on the pitch were not great. And it was not indicative of the kind of coach that he is or really of what the talent was on the roster at the time. It was an ill-fitting system. And again, he was a pl- he was a coach just like Kovac, who at one point or another decided to bench Thomas Muller, uh, which is going to segue us in right into this, is that Kovac ultimately, where he had already had a, a, a gap in his relationship with uh, the front office, Thomas Muller benching him put a, a just drove a wedge between Kovac and the fans. And that happened in Kovac's second season. There were obviously some parts of Kovac's first season where you could tell that that he really was not in sync with Muller and they didn't really have an understanding of how to work together. And when that happened, of course, we saw Muller's wife take to Instagram. We had the hashtag Muller Mafia obviously going crazy on our site at the time. Uh, but that was really the end for Kovac because he could not, once, once he lost the backing of of a lot of fans, it became almost a witch hunt. He wasn't having success on the field. He wasn't getting supported from the front office. And now the fans, rightfully so, were, were pissed off about the Thomas Muller situation. And eventually Thomas Muller was able to revive his career under Hansi Flick. And what that helped uh, Bayern Munich do was realize that while Thomas Muller was getting older, while he doesn't always have things that you can look at in some kind of advanced analytics sheet or on a score sheet. He brings so much more to the table than what you can track on sofa score or anywhere else. Uh, He is that important to the team. And I think Kovac's inability to find a way to work with Mueller and Flick's ability to, to maximize what Mueller really could do helped Mueller able, helped him be able to perform to a level that the club extended him. And this has really, I think helped Julian Nagelsmann because 
having a stable presence like Mueller throughout all of the change that has gone on, especially with losing Robert Lewandowski, has really helped the team stay together. Mueller's on the leadership council. He's the second captain. He is really the engine in what drives this squad. So Kovac again, Kovac again, without really meaning to help the club with that, set this all in motion for the club to realize just how important Mueller was and how he could be an integral figure for this club, even at an advanced age. And, and this next thing, I think, I mean, it falls in between the front office support and Mueller, but I wanted to touch on it last was really the Miami Knights fiasco because Kovac wanted to come in and change the culture. He wanted to build off of some of the things that Yup did in terms of being disciplined, in terms of, of being able to strategize with his players on the fly, being able to have the support of the players, but he didn't know how to do it. And it all really fell apart for him early in terms of player management on that first trip on the U S tour. Now you have to remember the situation. 2018 was a world cup season. So Robert Lewandowski, a silent leader by example, was not there. Thomas Muller was not there. Manuel Neuer was not there. Yashua Kimmich was not there. Leon Goretzka was not there. Bayern Munich was a team without its core group of leaders. What they did have was an aging duo of Arjen Robin and Frank Ribéry, a seldom used right back in Rafinha. Javi Martinez, again, good player, but was at that point really on his way down. David Alaba, who was great, but he was known in the past to really like his nightlife. So when they got to Miami, Kovac wanted to start to build his culture of discipline. He wanted to be able to take this team, right some of the wrongs that had happened under Carlo Ancelotti and get the players buying into his uh, ideas on rest, his ideas on nutrition, and, and basically build this disciplined atmosphere. Well, that blew up right away. Uh, the players, reportedly led by Rafinha, Franck Ribéry, uh, among others, uh, they rebelled against it. And it wasn't all of the veterans that I mentioned, but it was really players that had some influence like Ribéry and Rafinha who led this charge. And I believe Alba was another one that was among that group where they took the younger players and they went out against coaches' orders. And of course, uh, when doing bed checks and all of that stuff, it became very obvious that the players had went out. And it may be even worse that they showed those younger players that were on the tour, many of whom, most of whom are not with the club any longer, that respecting the manager and obeying his request was, was not something they were interested in. So that right off the bat became an issue. And Kovac, his first instinct per the report at the time was that he wanted to discipline the players, but he was advised by some of his coaching staff not to do it for fear that he would lose the team so early. And in retrospect, that was a a great line of thinking. And I'm sure Hansi Flick, who was on the staff, uh, probably had some say in that. But the problem was without that discipline, the players thought of him as a pushover and he never gained that respect. So without disciplining those players, they lost the respect for him. And you could tell that from an early stage. And I believe that's why his communication with the team over the course of the season and a half that he was in charge really was never good. I mean, there were a lot of reports at the time that things weren't great. 
uh, in terms of the relationship between the players and the coaching staff. And, you know, I, I don't fault Kovac for that because he wanted to come in and do things his way. Unfortunately, he could not do it because of some really vocal veterans. And I think what Byron ultimately learned from that experience in, in Miami Knights was that the coaches that they hired moving forward needed not just to be a hot candidate. Uh, I'm talking about what his value was on the, the coaching market at the time, not his looks. So you can get that out of your minds right now. Um, <laughs> we already had this hot coach debate based on some poll in the Bundesliga. And I think Kovac was third. All right. We, we discussed that on the site enough. We don't need to cover hashtag yacht club Kovac any longer here. But what Bayern Munich was able to learn from all of that was they needed a communicator, someone who was an expert in player management. And if you look at their following two hires, Hansi Flick, who took over for Kovac, master at communication, master at collaborating with the players and getting the most out of them, and an excellent player manager. He knew whose buttons to push when, how to set people up in lineups, how to get the most out of those players. And if you think about it, Julian Nagelsmann has a lot of those traits. Nagelsmann goes out of his way to build relationships with players. And that's something that Flick did and Nagelsmann has built on. Kovac wasn't so, I would say, confident in his ability to interact with these big ego uh, veteran players who honestly were more accomplished than he was probably. So um, I think all of these lessons that the club learned through all of Kovac's failures helped get the team where it is today, which is looking pretty damn good. So that was a long-winded way of saying that Despite Niko Kovac not really being regarded as a success at Bayern Munich, his tenure did provide some of the foundation for how the club wanted to operate and how it ultimately does operate today because they learned lessons from that tenure. So I, I wish him good luck in what he does in the Bundesliga. Obviously, maybe not so much good luck on Sunday when Wolfsburg faces off with Bayern Munich. Uh, the second thing I learned this week was that Robert Lewandowski's new club just can't get it together off the pitch. And I'm not going to sit here and dive in the financial levers and who's pulling what and who's yanking who off and all of this. Uh, I don't get it. All right. Like I'm not going to spend all this time looking at Barcelona and, and each of the reasons why they're in this predicament and they can't register players and who's in danger and who needs to go back to their former club or, or anything. Because one, I'm not a Barcelona fan, but two, like it is, it's so deep and so in depth. I think if I got RLD on the show, he could probably nail this all down with a good 20 minute discussion, explaining all the ins and outs, where Barca went wrong, how they can fix it, uh, what they can do moving forward. But let's be honest, this is just a complete train wreck. It's an embarrassment to Spanish football. It's an embarrassment to football in general. How do you get to this point? How are you allowed to proceed and operate in such a financially irresponsible manner? And if, if I'm Robert Lewandowski, look, this week he issued a lot of statements. He had a lot of interviews. He talked about why he made his move. He talked about his great relationship with Bayern Munich and all that. And it was all great stuff to read. Um, I have to wonder if he's not having a little bit, just a little bit of buyer's remorse, because this has got to be so unsettling on a lot of levels that right now the team while talented, can't really function in a way where it's maximizing all of its parts or using all of its parts. Um, it just seems like this is very unstable. Um, and for Lewandowski, I kind of do feel bad because unlike a lot of Byron fans, like I, I didn't want to see him go even at the stage at the end. Like I, 
I'm I'm glad he got what he wanted, that he's fulfilling a dream, and that all makes sense to me. Um, but to me, he's such a good player. He deserves to be in a spot that's at a minimum stable, and I don't think he's getting that right now. I hope it works out for him. I'm sure there will there will be some miracle that allows Barcelona to get everyone they want registered in and and done in time. Uh, I I don't doubt that at all, but I do think that there is uh you know there's a lot that looks bad here, and for Robert Lewandowski, it's you know I I would hope for him things just smooth out and they can settle in at Barca. Listen, I have no love for them. I could care less. But I would like to see him be able to ride off into the sunset in the final years of his career, playing at a good level, surrounded by good teammates. So uh, hopefully that situation works itself out. But I'll tell you, I need no name and some of the others on our site, including a lot of the commenters have had a lot of fun looking at this disaster, this raging dumpster fire uh, uh, floating down a polluted river. Uh, in Spain, and, and they are just enjoying it because I, I get it. A lot of people hate Barcelona, and I guess rightfully so if you're that much of a fan of uh, Bayern and you just don't want to see other clubs be good. But, uh, you know, listen, we're not here to, to really cover Barca, but we he- are here to comment on things when they do go wrong. So uh, we'll keep up with the story and, you know, keep up with the Lewandowski angle for sure. But Man, that is that is just a mess, and I felt like I had to I had to cover that a little bit because it's, it's a raging disaster. It really is. Uh, the third thing I learned this week is that Kingsley Coman's return to Bayern Munich might complicate matters for Julian Nagelsmann. And I was really stunned when I read this report because, you know, I thought when you look at this four two 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 formation, that Kingsley Coman would be one of the players up top. Uh, specifically looking at Sadio Mane and Serge Gnabry, I thought really those three players would be among the the group in those two spots up top. I kind of thought that that second group, the second two, uh, Thomas Muller and, and Jamal Musiala had it pretty much locked down, but I figured that's where Leroy Sané might work in just based on how Nagelsmann had used him last season and during the preseason. But you know, when we saw the report drop that Coman is considered to be in the group with Muller and Musiala, it kind of struck me for a few reasons. One, Coman is a dynamic attacking talent. I don't really view him as much of a midfielder or even an attacking midfielder. So I would think in this alignment, you would want him up top. But uh, it appears that Nagelsmann wants to use him in that really attacking playmaking group. And I immediately thought of this, like, who the hell sits among Muller, Musiala, and Coman? Right now, Musiala is arguably the best player on the team. He has been that good so far. Muller is indispensable. If you take him off the pitch, you lose so much, not just offensive, not just offensively, but also with leadership and really just guiding the team. Those 10 field players every week, he is he's the heart and the motor of that. But Coman is also so, so good. And I wasn't always the biggest Coman fan. When he was younger, I thought he had reached a little bit of a level where he stopped improving and where he had really like just not really evolved his game to the point where his decision-making in the final third really got any better. He was making the same mistakes, you know, he was making in his first year at Bayern in his third year. And it just did not seem like there was a lot of growth. 
But what we saw him do under Hansi Flick was really expand his game, become a more self-assured and confident player in the final third. And we saw him just become a fearless attacker, taking everyone on. And think about how good those those teams were under Flick and, and how big of a part Coman was of the whole equation. Of course, he had the Champions League game winner. I mean, it tells you, and, and, and header at that, which is maybe something when he was a little younger might not have even been in that position, given how sloppy he was with his positioning and, and little aspects of the game like that. But when I look at this situation, I'm like, man, I don't know who I would sit. I mean, obviously, I'm keen to stick with Muller and Musiala at this stage, but I would think like I would probably want to mix Coman in with Mane. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. And this is one of the only things that I've been like harping on and worried about all season is that I feel like the team is so top heavy in the attack. They have so many good players. I am worried how Nagelsmann can manage it and if he can manage it and manage it. We've already seen Sané kind of, you know, griping a little like while this week alone, while some players in the attack, some very important leaders on the team stayed and put in some extra work. He rolled out right when practice ended. Guys can do what they want. That's their decision. That's their personal time. But he's also a player who is paid like a starter, is treated like a starter, um, has a reputation would lead you to believe he's a starter, but he's not in the starting 11. So you would think in that scenario, if you were a player like that, you would want to put in that extra work. And listen, I don't know. I can't comment too much. on. I don't know what he had going on personally, maybe an appointment. Who knows? But you know, what we're seeing with Sané right now is he's a guy with a lot of talent. He's a guy that has a track record of, of performing. Uh, he's also a guy that went through a funk at the end of last season. And I do wonder where a guy like him fits in. I do wonder, you know, how Nagelsmann can manage this trio with Muller, Musiala, and Kuman, if that's really how he views them. Um, because if he's got Sané as one of those quote unquote striker positions with Gnabry and Mane, I, I don't know how great of a spot that is for Sané either. When I look at him, I think he is a pure winger, just like I, I kind of view Coman the same way. Like, I think when I look at him, I, I think of a wing, a dynamic presence on the wing. So this alignment that Nagelsmann is using, I don't know that it ultimately is going to get the best top performance out of every player, but how they're working collaboratively and together as a unit is, is excellent. So you can't complain with the results. And while this particular formation might not get the most individually out of players, how they're operating as a group has been off the charts and you can't argue with the results. So he's pushing the right buttons right now, Nagelsmann. It, it's, it's a situation where I think as we get a little further along and we start to see some of the squad rotations and maybe who picks up an injury here or there, uh, we'll be able to maybe have a little more clarity on how this is all going to work. But I do think when Coman is eligible to come off of the suspended list, his presence is going to complicate things a bit for uh, Julian Nagelsmann. And that's that's definitely one thing that I will be keen on uh, keeping an eye on for sure. Uh, the fourth thing that I learned this week is one of Brazo's favorites, Tangai Nianzu, has a very touchy situation going on right now. Uh, Nianzu is a player who is widely regarded as great talent. I think what we saw from him last year is he does have ability, but he's just not ready. The question remains, how do you get a player, a young player like that, ready at Bayern Munich when he's automatically behind Luca Hernandez, Mat- Matthijs Delict, Benjamin Pavar, 
Dayo Upamakano. Those are four very good players at center back, even though Pavar has been playing right back solely right now. I mean, you can look at it and say Pavar would be the option ahead of Nianzu. Uh, and for the kid, for his development, I do wonder how much that game time would help him. He's obviously going to benefit by being at Bayern Munich every day, being in that professional environment, watching some of the best players in the world compete daily. For sure, that's a good thing. But Nianzu himself has to probably start wondering where he's going to fit into the equation here. Delict is a young player. Luca Hernandez is in his prime. He's not that old. Benjamin Pavar is in his prime. He's not that old. Diopa Makano is a relatively young player too. Those are four players I can't see Nianzu jumping over at this point. And yes, it's nice to have a good young player as depth on a squad like this. And he will learn undoubtedly, but it looks like to me, he's a player that needs to be out there learning on the fly and not just in training. He needs to have some game action. And I don't think he's going to quite get enough given the depth situation at center back at Bayern Munich. So we did see that West Ham was interested in him. I don't know that Byron is eager to put him out on loan or to sell him in general. I, I don't think they're going to sell him. I think Brazo has staked some of his reputation on Nianzu, uh going out and getting him. He's obviously a reason that the club no longer has Chris Richards, who was also widely regarded at one point as, as a potential player uh, for Bayern Munich's backline in the future. And, and quite frankly, I mean, you, you all know my history with Richards. I think he's still, a player that's going to prove himself and show himself. But when Byron let a player like Richards go in favor of keeping Nianzu, um, to me, there's a little more pressure on him to show that he's going to perform and perform consistently. Right now, he looks like a young player who gets sloppy at times with his positioning and his decision-making, um, which honestly, you could have said that about Benjamin Pavar last season. You could have said it maybe the season before that, yes, he was a, uh, uh, a player on the rise who was a little sloppy with his positioning, definitely sloppy with his decision-making, but Pavar was able to be on the field and play his way out of it. And he's, you could see that this season, he already looks much more confident and assertive and involved. Uh, will Nianzu get that opportunity? I just don't see it. So uh, it's very touchy around him at this point. And if you are a fan of Nianzu's, uh, I don't know how much you're going to see him on the pitch. And uh, I'll be very interested to see what Brazo ends up doing with this because you know, as we said, he's he's staked a part of his reputation toward Nianzu going out and getting him as a youngster, bringing him to Bayern Munich, and then really hyping him up for the better part of two years now where, you know, he hasn't shown all of the promise that we have read about. So we'll be following that one. It'll be very interesting. And, uh, you know, I always find it, you know, in, fascinating to see that the tug of war that happens when you have a front office executive who is tied to a player and then a coach who might not want to use that player. So again, going back to all the collaboration and communication, things will probably work themselves out because Byron has learned from their previous mistakes. So we, we shall see what happens with Tangai Nianzu. The fifth and final thing that I learned about Byron Munich this week was that Joshua Xerxes um, has a lot of value in Byron Munich's eyes, uh, approximately 20 million euros in value. Uh, is what they want for him. Uh, so Xerxes is is a player that uh, who whose transfer saga could be nearing an end as Byron has put out what they allegedly want, which I'm assuming will drop because you know you obviously want to aim high with your the asking price and realizing that you'll probably settle on something lower. 
But I think that this will all be solved shortly. We've seen uh, a few different clubs interested in Xerxes, um, Eindhoven, West Ham United, among others, uh, Southampton, I believe, uh, Burnley. I mean, there were quite a few that were interested in Xerxes. And I think for him, he's another kid. He was able to go out on loan last year and really show his talent and what he could do. And I think for him, it's very important to go and build on that in a situation where he can play first team football consistently. And should he move on, I I think he should really target for his own career, a club where he can get that playing time that he needs so he can showcase himself. And if he is as good as he has looked at times and he can prove that he is consistent, he can go and use the next place where he's at to build himself up into a bigger transfer, which would of course benefit uh, whatever club lands him and can sell him and also uh, benefit a bigger club who would be able to get him uh, a player that has experience and has proven himself to, to be consistent. So Xerxy is, is a pretty fascinating subject in terms of following what he does. He was so up and down uh, as a youngster, showed great promise and then absolutely fell off, revived his career with a loan, but now is in a spot where like, I mean, when I write articles, I don't even list him as an option in the attack at this point because he's so deep on the depth chart that like I don't even foresee a way for him to get on the pitch because it's just, there's too much talent. Um, and, and quite frankly, there are younger players at Bayern Munich uh, like Paul Vonner, like Gabriel Vidovich, who might be a little more highly regarded at this point. And Vidovich is another one who, uh, honestly could be loaned out just because he's caught in a numbers game. Uh, and I think if you ask Paul Vonner, he might want to alone for himself too, because he's like, where is this kid going to get on the pitch? But anyway, those are subjects for a different day. Xerxes saga could be coming to an end. Hopefully he is able to work something out where he could be happy, where Bayern Munich can be happy with the transfer fee that they get. And that Xerxes new club can be happy because he'll go there and perform. So we shall see what happens with the Z as he has been known on social media at times. And now that I've gotten the the footballing part of this out of the way, I do want to hit a couple of quick entertainment notes. First, I I did start uh, watching We Own This City, which, you know, if you've listened to me about entertainment in the past, you you know, I've been kind of anti-HBO for a little bit and was very reluctant, even though I'd heard good things about this show to, to give it a try because I just had become bitter at HBO. I don't, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but I don't like the way they've handled some of their shows prematurely ending them, uh, squeezing in endings and force feeding endings into what were great storylines and just pushing them out to get a series done. I just don't like how they handled a lot of this, but we own the city so far. I'm a couple of episodes and has lived up to the hype that I had heard a limited series so there won't be a season two or anything like that but it is uh you know john bernthal who i'm a huge fan of from the punisher and walking dead he uh you know he stars in this is excellent in it it's a it's a very complex uh probably controversial story in a lot of ways but uh to me it was done in such a way so far anyway that has really maximized all the great things that we saw on the wire the real look and feel baltimore straight down to the accents, which I can appreciate. The storylines, how the characters were written, the dialogue, all those little things we loved about The Wire come through here. And, you know, if you follow that core group of writers and producers from The Wire and some of the other projects they've done, uh, like Treme, which I I didn't think was good, or The Deuce, which I thought was god-awful, 
uh, you know, I think more than anything, this was able to recapture that magic. And uh, I'm real happy with what I've seen so far. And now for the elephant in the room, which was the Better Call Saul penultimate episode, which, man, stop right here and fast forward uh, to the end if you, you don't want spoilers on it. But it's been a few days, so I figure I can talk about it now. We have finally seen where this story has a conclusion. And what happens with Gene Takovic, a.k.a. Saul Goodman, a.k.a. Jimmy McGill, and how... He could not help himself that for as disciplined as he had become in living that mundane life in Omaha, Nebraska, being a manager at Cinnabon and and just doing everything he could to stay uh, untraceable, to stay uh, transparent in terms of no one noticing him. He could not help himself. Once he got a little taste of the game, he went too far. And as we have seen with that character so many times, once he goes too far, bad things happen. And of course, in this case, his greediness, his reality that he was running out of cash, that the, the feds had seized much of the cash that he had hidden in, hidden in overseas accounts and other places. He wanted to give himself the opportunity to make what he thought was some easy cash. And he was so successful early on with doing it. But then he got sloppy. He got greedy. His buddy Jeffy got locked up. Jeffy's mom was able to use Ask Jeeves, which was a just a hilarious little throwback, uh, to find Saul Goodman commercials, which for the first time in this timeline of Gene Takovic, where we saw color, it's been in black and white the whole time. Um, it was just a fantastic episode for a lot of reasons those were the the primary things that i saw of course we had the whole subplot of kim wexler who is living this new mundane life of her own working for a i believe it was a sprinkler company in florida having kind of just a ho-hum boyfriend and relationship and then having the reality she wanted to atone for some of the things she was uh connected in went back uh of course talked to howard hamlin's wife uh came clean about what happened with howard and then we could see the emotional effect that it had on kim uh really just an award-winning performance there we also got a nice little throwback to kim and jesse pinkman having an interaction outside of saul goodman's office in albuquerque uh the timelines were jumping around a lot but it was just so well done just a fantastic episode we are steamrolling into this final one without really much certainty in a weird way. I look at this character and I look at this story and I, you shouldn't be rooting for Gene Takovic or Saul Goodman or Jimmy McGill, right? He is a bad guy in every sense of the word, just like you probably shouldn't have been rooting for Walter White or Jesse Pinkman. Um, you know, you see these guys, they're ultimately bad people, but just like Tony Soprano, just like some of the characters on the wire, you end up finding yourself rooting for the bad guy. Maybe that's just me, but like, I'm hoping like hell that we come out of better call Saul with, you know, Jimmy McGill finding a new life somewhere else, uh, able to, to go back into the shadows, live a, a, a quiet life and become undetectable again to the law. So 
Uh, I'm really hoping that somehow the character makes it through because I would love the opportunity for there to be more of this, more of this universe somewhere out there. Uh, but I don't know the, the writers at breaking bad uh, and, and for better call Saul, they have always done a tremendous job of knowing just how to end something. If you look at the way that breaking bad ended, it's absolutely phenomenal to me. One of the best endings of any prestige prestige television show of all time, better than the wire, better than the Sopranos, better, way better uh, than, than game of Thrones. Uh, you know, better than Deadwood, of course. Deadwood had to come back with a movie just to wrap things up. Uh, Peaky Blinders, of course, is doing the same thing, coming back with a movie to wrap things up. But uh, Breaking Bad, to me, the reason it became my number one favorite show over The Wire is that it took no seasons off um, and it had that ending. And, and trust me, I am like maybe one of the biggest Wire fans ever. Like, I love that show. The fifth season was was not great. The storyline was not great did have some really kick-ass final episodes, but um, I do think that, again, HBO kind of screwed all that up by making The Wire uh, operate in such a condensed fashion by limiting the, the show's budget and all that. So my, I have a long-term uh, issue with HBO, I guess. Part of it does have to do with The Wire and how that was handled. But, um, you know, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, to me, this is the best universe of shows that are that's out there. So, I highly suggest if you have not given these shows the opportunity, you should. It is well worth your investment of time. So I will be excited come Monday night to watch the final episode. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. So that's all I got for this week. Uh, I had blast uh, being able to talk about all these subjects because it was just a lot of fun. We've had a lot of activity on the site and uh, a lot of good discussions internally. And also with you guys out there, um, the commenters and listeners. So uh, you know, it's as always, it's just great to be able to do this and interact with you guys. So always, as always, you can hit me up on Twitter at the barrel blog, and I'm more than happy to, to go back and forth with you. Uh, you can always get the site at Bavarian FB works. You can get Tommy Adams at Tommy Adams 71 on his personal account, right? Ladies, you can get, I need no name at BFW And of course we have all of our non-Twitter folks, Samarin schnitzel, Fergus, uh, gosh, we have so many now. Swaz, I, I really, again, I said this last week, but I, I do need a list because there are so many people contributing now. But uh, appreciate every listen you guys give to this podcast and all of our shows. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the game. It's on Sunday, which uh, I still hate Sunday games, but have some fun with it. Drink some beers, and I will tell you what, uh, enjoy it, and then you can. Go right into Better Call Saul's series finale on Monday night, and then we can discuss that next week. So have an excellent weekend, and I'm looking forward to doing this again next week. We'll see you next time.